0: ted audio collective
1: canva presents stories to keep you up at night it was an ordinary work day until
2: the singapore presentation is at 3 a.m the office was shocked
3: (laughs) that's when we sleep
2: maya made it less scary with canva <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
1: Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: I'm Salim Rushniwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. Before we get started, shout out to Women Will, a Grow with Google program, for sponsoring this week's episode. And in a show that will take you to Bangkok, Nairobi, Mexico City, today we're going to the suburbs of New Jersey. Mantua Township.
2: I call it Mantua.
0: Okay, cool, that's how
2: Mm -hmm. we're gonna say it. Mantua, Mantua, all one Mantua.
0: Where the Gators
1: are battling the thundering herds in a small town football game. Mantua Township, like most of South Jersey, had an identity as these kind of sleepy little crossroad villages. That was Ken Lacovara,
0: a paleontologist. And before that, you heard Michelle Bruner, who works for the local government. They both live in Mantua Township. Now, this might be the nicest suburb I've ever been to. The chain stores are platonic ideals of chain stores. Like, there's no rundown anything or grit or grime to any of them. Like the Chick-fil-A looks like an architectural rendering of a perfect Chick-fil-A, pristine grass and everything. And Michelle, she loves it here.
2: So my favorite place, definitely Starbucks in my local Target, which I love.
0: Why do you love the Target?
2: I go because of the Starbucks, but they're not dumb.
0: Oh, so your favorite spot is the combination Starbucks-Target.
2: My favorite spot is the Starbucks in the Target.
0: And in one of these strip malls, behind a Lowe's hardware store, is a giant muddy hole that might just be one of the most important fossil digs in the entire world. A place where prehistoric history and the nature of deep time and very important things about dinosaurs are all layered in among the mud. And this is the story of it almost becoming an apartment complex.
2: So you're seeing the Chick-fil-A here, or Lowe's? You got PetSmart, you've got our Dollar Tree, and some other wonderful places. Great Clips, and our lovely hometown pizza store called Out. So
0: literally, how far are we from a f- fossil that you could dig up? Like,
2: I am one minute away from a fossil if I was in my car. It's right there.
0: Because with Ken and Michelle, no place is quite what it appears. So we hop in the car and we head behind the hardware store. There's a sign that says Fossil Park that has what appears to be a clip art dinosaur and a big arrow, and I love it. And that's where we meet up with Ken.
1: Hi, how are you? Great to meet you. Pleasure, Ken.
0: So Ken's a geologist and field paleontologist, which means that he has spent a lot of his career traveling the world, living out of tents, digging up dinosaurs. One time on a remote edge of Patagonia, he discovered what's possibly the world's
1: most massive dinosaur, which he named Dreadnoughtus. Meaning fears nothing. And Dreadnoughtus in life all fleshed out would have been 65 tons. So that's the mass of 13 bull African elephants. And that's about 10 tons heavier than a Boeing 737. So it really staggers the imagination to think how big these creatures could have gotten.
0: So yeah, world traveling, possibly giantist, dinosaur-discovering, paleontologist, never stops moving, yeah. But when his son was born, he settled down in New Jersey. Back to his roots.
1: So I grew up on the coast playing drums. I I used to play in all the Atlantic City hotels. My first job was in a surf shop, so I was kind of like surfer drummer dude growing up.
0: Okay, so in 2003, Ken was back in Jersey when a paleontologist friend told him that there was this mining operation in the area that had exposed a bunch of fossils.
1: And I thought, well, this would be a great place to take my students. And um, so I started a field course where we would go out and excavate. And this was just one of the places that we would go to. So a thing you got to
0: know about Jersey is Jersey is a great place. To find dinosaur fossils.
1: Where do you think the world's first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton was found? No idea. <laughs> but I'd guess a desert or something like that? Well, one would think, right? About 12 miles north of here in Haddonfield, New Jersey, 1858, farmers dig up the world's first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton a duck billed dinosaur named. Hadrosaurus.
0: A few minutes away in Ceres Park, paleontologists dug up some of the first fossils of a meat-eating dinosaur back in 1866. That was Dryptosaurus. And New Jersey played a really big role in this crazy thing called the Bone Wars, which was a vicious rivalry between two scientists during the birth of paleontology. There's a lot of dinosaur stuff in Jersey. So Ken starts bringing his students to that mining site to practice excavating. He knew it was a great spot for education, but there was also this one layer in particular that told him it could be something more. It was packed with fossils, and it looked like they could be from close to the moment when the dinosaurs
1: died. Slowly it started to dawn on me that this could be an important place. So Ken started researching the dig a little more
0: closely, and he started bringing other paleontologists around but then in 2011, Ken found out the site was in danger because it didn't really make sense for Inversand, the mining company, to maintain it anymore.
1: They were losing money at the site every year
0: and they wanted to go away. Inversand was keeping water out of the site using giant pumps. If the pumps stop, the whole site floods into a mud pool. So local government had a plan to fill it in and build some housing and shops, just a nice extension of that strip mall. To really understand the stakes, where Ken's head is at this moment, we have to talk about an asteroid. Okay, scientists agree that 66 million years ago, an asteroid hit the earth in the Yucatan Peninsula. Right around the same time, the dinosaurs went extinct. There's no debate there, but there are still many questions that are being debated. Were dinosaurs already on their way out when the asteroid hit? What happened right after that asteroid hit? What ultimately was the thing that made the most powerful group of species on earth disappear altogether? Nerdy side note, except for birds. Birds are dinosaurs. In
1: essence, how did the dinosaurs go extinct? Did they they die in a flash or, or did they go out with a whimper over a long period of time?
0: And one reason scientists are still debating these things is that there's lots of gaps in the geologic record. We have all these dinosaur fossils spread out leading up to just about 66 million years ago. But in that little moment where the asteroid hit, they've barely
1: found any. A few things here and there, but, but nothing really significant. It's not like you can see the, you know, the dinosaur apocalypse in any one site. Right. And so because even
0: though so many things died at once, to come across a specific day, some Thursday or a Friday, 66 million years ago, is almost impossible. Is almost ludicrous. One way of looking at this question, how did the dinosaurs die, is thinking of it as a really old murder mystery.
1: We have the the theory of the crime, right? That's that an asteroid killed them. Now we have the smoking gun.
0: That's that huge asteroid crater that's been found in Mexico.
1: You can't really take that case to trial because you're still missing something. You're missing the body, right? Or the bodies in this case
0: the bodies in this case are not just any dinosaur fossils. We need bodies from close to the moment of the asteroid hitting. But paleontologists have been looking for these specific fossils from that moment for decades. Ken's wondering, what if this densely packed layer of fossils that he's seen in the mine, what if that's close to that specific time, that Thursday or that Friday? That would be of global significance. And Basically, shutting down any place that even might have an answer to how the dinosaurs died feels crazy. And the whole site's on the verge of becoming an apartment complex.
1: I didn't have a plan uh, other than that I knew we had to try to save this site, and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know if it was possible, but I thought we should try.
0: So... Ken walks into a local government office in Mantua and meets Michelle Bruner, the Michelle we heard from earlier. She's a coordinator of economic development in town, and she's in charge of redeveloping the Inversand Mine. So to make this all work, Ken needs her help.
2: First time he came in, I'll never forget, he he walked in, he was in his like paleontology garb. What's, What's
0: paleontology garb look like?
2: where it's the waterproof pants, and he had his tan hat, he had his tan little summer, you know, the winterized shirt, and then he had his boots on and he walked in and he just started to talk to me about the site.
1: And said, you know, do you know what you have behind the lows here? You have this amazing treasure. I think the next thing that happened is she wanted to jump in her car and see it herself.
2: I remember the moment that I looked at the different sand elements up on the bank of the quarry as you're walking down and every step you're taking, you're going farther and farther, millions and millions of years into the time. I literally felt that. I, I guess I was taught things in school. I don't remember any of it. And this was as if it was my first experience being attached to my earth that's been around me for how many years I've been in Mantua. And it just started to become this wonderful excitement. Okay, let's take care of business. Let's try, let's try to save this site.
0: So Michelle's on board. She gets the government to call off the apartments. For now, the site is safe. And Ken and Michelle become this strange team in what's shaping up to be kind of like a highly unusual paleontology buddy movie.
1: If your listeners have watched Parks and Rec, uh, I always liken her to Leslie Nope. She has that kind of energy. Uh, she has that kind of cheer. She, in the beginning, she used to put bows and ribbons and balloons all over my quarry, which I didn't like that much, but. uh, It was a different aesthetic than you were used to. Yeah, nobody's really put bows on my excavation sites before.
2: And he finally, years later, was able to tell me, okay, the bows and ribbons have to go. That's really not science. We're in a museum and I'm like, dude, what did you want? You told me to create an environment.
0: So two very different people. Ken always sees time on a massive scale. He told me there was this one point when he was younger, he had to teach this like practical course on engineering
1: geology, which is basically how to keep stuff where you put it, right? If you want to build this bridge, how do you keep it there? If you want to build this building, how do you keep it there? But, but he could never really get himself to care. To me, you could build the best bridge in the world, and that bridge is going to fall down essentially now. I mean, maybe that's in 2,000 years, but to a geologist, that's now. All right, you could build it. And Michelle, building. she keeps scrapbooks on the smallest
0: moments. Wait, can I ask one quick question? Sure. Do you literally print out social media quotes for your scrapbook? Like so
2: yeah, I do have. You'll see the scrapbook. And everybody laughs at me when they sign my little sign-in sheet. You were here. Get together for a photo. Because you were here on this day and time in this moment. And what's coming you're going to look back on and say, I was here when it started. I was a part of this. It's history.
0: She loves the city today and wants more people to love it. He loves deep time and he wants to keep digging, but there's still a money problem. They can't just keep relying on the kindness of the mining company to keep those pumps going.
1: Yeah, we knew we only had maybe a few years uh, in order to uh, save the property or it was going to go in a different direction. They had to buy the property for themselves. For
0: that, they needed to find $2 million. So that's the long-term thing. But before they even get to think about that, in the short term, they needed to pay to keep those pumps on or this pit would become a lake within a few weeks. And they currently had no
1: budget.
2: And I remember a moment on a different visit where Ken looked around. We were both in the quarry and he said, we need to get the community behind us.
1: I didn't see any way that we were going to raise the money without telling people about it, right? And paleontologists usually try to keep their sites secret to keep them safe. So this was something new for me.
2: And it was in that moment that we decided to hold our first ever, what we now call, Community Dig Day.
0: Okay, so Community Dig Day. Invite anyone who wants to come dig up fossils to come and dig up fossils, and in the process, find out if the community would care about the site and could help them save it. And this is where Michelle gets to shine.
2: I wanna introduce you to Susan Bowen. She was one of the very first volunteers.
0: Michelle was giving us a tour of the municipal building. White walls, fluorescent lights, pretty much exactly what you'd expect for a local government building. And she's leading us to the construction department.
2: Yeah. Here's nice well nice here is
0: our number one Susan was involved from the very beginning, and for the community dig day, she painted dinosaur signs. Michelle put bows all over the site. But that morning, they really didn't know if anyone was going to show up.
2: And if you build it, they will come. That was our and slogan. And so they did. <laughs> that really was, wasn't it? Our little it packed, quiet slogan, if they build it. And they did come.
0: In the first two hours, 1,600 people arrived. Which is a lot for a town of 15,000
1: total people.
2: Our police officers were calling, and we've got Virginia, we've got Vermont, we've got Delaware.
1: And people just kept coming and coming and coming. It reminded me of that uh, scene in Fantasia with the brooms. you know.
2: Everybody wanted to be a part of this. And so we were. And so we are. Mm-hmm. We are.
0: Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Women Will, a Google initiative. We're spotlighting women all over the world who are finding new ways to impact their communities. Hatun Kadi likes comedy that she can see herself in.
3: Some people might laugh at profanity, but I don't. But I do laugh at insightful comedy. Oh God, this is me, yeah, I do this. When I feel that I can relate, I really laugh.
0: Hatun is one of the first Saudi women to make a name for herself as a comedian. And she had to do it, at least in the beginning, on her own.
3: Let's be honest. I am uh, an average uh, looking uh, woman wearing the hijab. No one would want to give you a slot uh, on a primetime TV or on any show. But with YouTube, you just need to open your camera and just do it.
0: Hatun started as a blogger writing funny posts about social issues from a woman's point of view. But in 2012, she saw a bunch of new Saudi comedy shows were launching on YouTube, and that they were all hosted by men. Hatun thought, I could do that.
3: I knew I can deliver the content. I just did not think twice about it, and I just started my YouTube show. And I was just talking about our everyday lives, but from a very female perspective.
0: The video went viral. Women loved seeing someone like them making comedy.
3: The first episode, it was mainly about cool girls and how do they talk and what do they do. They always say, "Oh my God, no way, la, la, please."
0: Do you know if any of them found this funny, or what do you think?
3: The funny thing is that all the cool girls, they came out, they were laughing their their hearts out.
0: The feedback confirmed Hatun's hunch. Women were hungry for comedy about their lives. So she made a second video, but that one got a whole different response from a whole different group of people.
3: It just started attracting haters what kind of things were people saying? It was like, oh my God, you are so damn ugly. Oh my God, you are so fat. And it was like, is it worth it?
0: She stopped. For three months, Hatoon wrestled with the question, is it worth making another video?
3: And I decided that I'm doing a real content, a content I know that people will love. So even if haters are gonna hate, it's worth it at the end.
0: Eight years later, Hatun is a big TV personality. She's published a book and her YouTube show, Noon al-Niswa has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. She's broken new ground for herself and for other women too.
3: It's still not easy for families to have their daughters doing something public on social media. But actually in the past five years, Things are drastically changing, getting more and more and more easier for uh, for Saudi girls.
0: Maybe the next Saudi comedy star will find Hatoon's YouTube channel and will follow in her footsteps. Hatoon created an online community around her comedy and her videos have had millions of views. Thanks to the Women Will initiative, Hatoon and others like her are able to access digital training that makes all the difference, not just in their lives, but in the lives of others. Active in 48 countries, this Grow with Google program helps inspire, connect, and educate millions of women. Learn more and join in the conversation on Instagram at WomenWill. That's at W O M E N W I L L. Ken and Michelle showed the site was valuable to the community, which helped them secure a little funding for the next few years. Just enough to keep the pumps on so the pit wouldn't flood yeah. Yeah, and a little extra to start some research. Yeah, me too. To see what they've been digging up. Okay. okay. We yeah, we
3: yeah. got boots.
1: We walked into the site with Ken. So what we're looking at here, this is a four acre quarry. It's a former Marl mine. Marl is a a sediment that uh, farmers used to dig up to use it as a fertilizer. But to me, it looks like a giant mud pit.
0: So I asked Ken to help me understand what I was looking at. And as we start walking down, he begins to narrate our walk
1: geologically and pretty epically. I've counted the steps. As we walk down, uh, each step, every footfall, will take us back about 400,000 years. Each
0: step. Yeah. He points out striations in the rocks, which are lines of rock in the earth. Basically, if you slice the earth, or in this case, dig a massive enough pit, these lines mark phases in geologic history. It's almost like tree rings, but for the planet.
1: If you see the the green on bottom and the, the yellow orange on top, that's the birth of New Jersey.
0: So I asked Ken, 66 million years ago, right before an asteroid hit the coast of Mexico and sparked the apocalypse, what was happening right here in this pit?
1: So if we were here 66 million years ago, we'd be in a world of trouble because we're in the ocean right here. If you look over at the tops of those tallest trees there, that would be the level of the sea. So swimming through where we are right now, Big, nasty mosasaurs, think of a marine Komodo dragon that's as long as a school bus, paddles for limbs, a six-foot jaw, and they have a second set of teeth at the top of their throat that points backwards to keep you from swimming back out. So, sea monster, basically. And if you would turn and go to the west here from South Jersey, somewhere in eastern Pennsylvania is the coastline. All dinosaurs lived on land. Every now and then a dinosaur dies along the coast ends up in the water, what happens is it's kind of gross. So the animal will first get a lung full of water. They'll sink to the bottom.
0: And as the carcass starts to decay, it fills up with
1: decay gases. And that kind of inflates it a bit. And then they become kind of like a a giant bobbing meat buoy at sea. Among the many evocative phrases Ked uses, giant bobbing meat buoy at sea. That one will stick with me. And as these dead bloat and float dinosaurs would float out to sea and rot, pieces of the skeleton fall out on the seafloor. So even though this whole area is a former
0: sea, they still find occasional dinosaur remains here from dinosaurs that bloated and floated from the coast.
1: It's a little flex, so be careful. Yeah, we're kind of getting in the mud. And then we get to the bottom. If you see where we have the blue harp there. Uh, That's where we left off excavating.
0: And Ken kneels down to point out some mud
1: separated from some other mud. And there's a thin layer, it's about 10 centimeters, right there where the blue is, and that's our bone bed.
0: A massive prehistoric graveyard in the depth of one finger. They started their research on that layer in 2011 and quickly found that there
1: were some pretty large things in that very small layer. Here's a 25-foot-long crocodile, and all the bones are articulated. How about that? I didn't really expect that. And then, oh, here's a beautiful sea turtle shell, and the bones are articulated.
0: Articulated. That means that these bodies were found with the bones grouped together and positioned more or less like they were when the creature was alive. Like... That 25 foot crocodile, its bones were positioned in a crocodile way, as if it hadn't been disturbed by time or by other creatures. And this was the case for a ton of fossils from this layer. And that made Ken think, huh, maybe all these fossilized animals
1: here died at once. We could tell by the turnover in the fossil fauna that we were at the end of the time of the dinosaurs. And you know, what's close in in geology? 100,000 years is close with deposits that are 66 million years old. And that is where our science has to stop for now. We're testing the hypothesis that, you know, do we have this moment in time represented at the end of the Cretaceous period when an asteroid hits and triggers the world's fifth mass extinction in which the dinosaurs and 75% of species go extinct. And we are writing up those results. And within a year, Ken hopes to publish
0: If the hypothesis is correct, this site would give a window straight into that Thursday or Friday or whatever day 66 million years ago when the asteroid hit. A direct look at the moment of the mass extinction filled with prehistoric bodies. And that might finally help scientists conclude if the dinosaurs went out with a bang or a whimper. But no matter what happens with the science, this pit is going to transform this little Jersey suburb because as the results were coming in, their community dig days were getting bigger. There were supposed to be events for the community, and yet license plates were starting to show up from Georgia, Michigan,
1: Massachusetts. He started hearing English accents. People were coming from all over the world. And then I realized that there is really this incredible thirst for humans to be able to make a connection to the place where they live and to Earth's ancient past. And then, you know, it was, kind of obvious that we had to do something really big here. And if you've got a site that's related to an
0: extinction of an entire species, well, that's pretty relevant to
1: humans. Right now, the, the world is, is experiencing multiple simultaneous existential crises. The planet's warming because of humans, sea levels rising, the oceans are being acidified. We have a biodiversity crisis And I think when people come here and they learn the story about how dinosaurs dominated the earth for 165 million years, and then poof, they were gone. So that should be a lesson for all of us, right? We think we're pretty, you know, tough, I think, as a species. But the future is guaranteed to no one. Ken believes it's a cautionary tale
0: even the most powerful creatures can disappear in a geological instant.
1: Because the thing that leads to extinction more than anything else is is um, a lack of stability. And so that's the thing with climate change. It's not particularly hot in Earth history right now. Those aren't particularly high levels of CO2 in Earth history. But the rate of change is unprecedented. And the rate of change is such that, that evolution can't deal with it and environments can't change rapidly enough.
0: I think that, that time thing is one of the things that makes it so hard for people to understand, I think. Like, how bad are we compared to the meteor?
1: Well, we're the meteor. We are the meteor of our age. And so, you know, our petroleum economy has existed for, what, like 150 years? I mean, and geologically, It's the same, right? I mean, an hour, 150 years over geology, it's the same.
0: But unlike the dinosaurs, one big difference, Ken says, is that we have some control over what happens next.
1: It's not like there's an asteroid heading in and and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, We can do something about it. And so I feel like... If we don't use the examples of the dinosaurs as a cautionary tale, well, then I feel like we're lost <laughs> because hmm. we, you could have no better example than that and no better wake up call. So Ken's vision for the site grew. A world-class
0: museum, a Disneyland for fossils, an existential example for humanity,
1: all right behind the lows and I would hope that the people that are coming here and learning here and being inspired here are the people that are going to be bending that arc into the future towards good.
0: But nobody gets to get that lesson from the site if the site disappears, and they still needed more money. Michelle was approved for a grant from the government, but it was nowhere near the two million that they
1: needed. So it became apparent to To both of us that we just weren't going to get there using current methods, right? that we we needed some kind of breakthrough, we needed to do something else, or we were not going to be able to save this site. And that is when Ken got a call. I got a call from the president of Rowan University, uh, Ali Hushman, and he said, uh, why don't we go have breakfast at Angelo's Diner in Glassboro?
0: The president of the university tells Ken, I want to hire you for our university. And Ken's like, Great, but I have one condition.
1: You know that fossil site in our neighborhood? He said, I know, it's kind of a headache for me. You get a lot of publicity, and people always ask me about it. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, we'd have to buy that, and we'd have to raise funds to build a museum. And he said, right there at breakfast, let's do it. Right there at breakfast. And they do it. They buy the site, they throw
0: on millions of extra dollars to make a museum. Ken's got his job, and he can keep researching. And now that the cash is starting to work out, things are really in motion. Back in the dig, Ken tells us how this place is about to change.
1: You know, right now we have a tent and, and two porta potties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, soon, in three years, we will have a beautiful 45,000 square foot museum at the Edelman Fossil Park. And we're expecting hundreds of thousands of people a year when that happens.
0: And remember, the whole community is in on this too. To feel what the change means for some of the residents, let's go back to Susan Baldwin in construction from earlier. If you remember, she was one of the volunteers that helped build the site when it was just this little thing.
2: It was our baby. And now it isn't. But it is. Yeah, it is. Give me a minute.
0: Can you flesh out you just said, and now it isn't? Is that what you said?
2: Well... It's owned by Rowan now. Yeah. So it's, it started with being a Manchua Township project with Ken, who at the oh, time right. was with a different university. So we watched the children coming down mm-hmm. and with their little dinosaur T-shirts. and. So when we passed the torch in 2016, you felt it, we, even though yeah, it's still the same and we still come participate. It has come to a fruition that we really didn't expect it to, to be. Um, But since Rowan came over, it it has embodied the complete potential, not just of those of us, but now in the whole world. It's a a universal site, not just something that's local. It's become global.
0: Once this fossil park hits town, it's going to change
1: everything.
2: This is Dinosaur City to us.
1: The very identity of Mantua. And this is really, I think, what Mantua will be known for. And for my university, Rowan University, we don't have a Division I football team. The Fossil Park is going to be our Division I football team. So five years from now, if you're a kid in California who decides to come to Rowan University, it's probably going to be because of the Edelman Fossil Park.
0: You can start to feel the changes in the smallest corners of town. We got in the car with Michelle to drive to Steakout, a local joint right next to the Lowe's. Ken recommended the pizza. It's a Western themed spot with lots of vintage signs, and we were here because Michelle and Brian, the manager, have been brainstorming what they can do to ride the dinosaur wave of the upcoming museum. Are you guys piled in close enough? I feel good? We're gonna sit a little awkwardly close. We're happy to participate any way we can, and uh, we'd like to even put some menu items on our menu after the mu- uh, museum opens to hopefully bring people in and uh, you know, let them know we participate. What do menu changes caused by a dinosaur or a dinosaur park nearby look like? What is that, like, dinosaur-shaped slice? Like, what is, what's actually on the menu? We had an idea of maybe making a salad where the chicken might be on the bottom, and you have to dig for it.
2: Oh, I love that.
0: That is a really good <laughs> idea. What could you call that digging for the chicken salad? Big dig salad?
2: <laughs> big dig, because that's what people call the fossil that's part right. when we have the cune dig. The big dig's coming. That's right. And one was a burger, a dinosaur burger. You know, it's possible to buy larger size burgers. Maybe get Ken to give us a cookie cutter of the Dreadnoughtus that he discovered and the Mosasaur. That would be great. And then we could have all different kinds of burger shaped. Actually, we can do Dryptosaurs, which was discovered in Ceres Park in Mantra, so we can do a whole theme of South Jersey burgers.
0: That's great. Is it all weird to think about like the 66 million year history getting turned Mm -hmm. into like shapes of burgers? I'm
2: excited for that. It's not weird at all. There is so much that we can do for our businesses as we start connecting to them more and more through what the fossil park is bringing to this area. So for now, we just kind of tell you here's what's happening and here's what's coming. And I can't tell you too much about what's coming yet, but get ready.
0: This all got me wondering, I mean, it's super exciting for the town and for small businesses, but how does this all look from Ken's epic geologic viewpoint? So I asked him specifically how his deep time perspective might make him see Mantua differently from other people.
1: Well, I, I don't really think of, of the current manifestation of a place as being the definition of that place, right? And so it happens to look like this here now, but that's not all this place has ever been. And I think over 99% of species that have ever existed are extinct. So if you were to just study animals that happen to be alive today, you'd be missing out on almost all of biology. And if you were to look at a place as it just happens to exist today, you're missing out on almost the entire history of that place. And so every place has been many different places that have occupied many different Earths. And so, this exact place where we're sitting right now- Me,
0: I usually think of a place as coordinates on a map, a specific geographic location. But Ken looks at a place and sees another variable, just massive amounts of time.
1: You know, um, place is a funny thing in that these are cultural attributes that we ascribe to areas of the Earth. There was no New Jersey in the Cretaceous, right? There was no Mantua Township in the Cretaceous. And amazing things have happened on our planet. And today, some of those amazing things just happen to be in a spot now that we call New Jersey, that we call Mantua Township. And, you know, I think you can never really look at a place and and think that there's nothing extraordinary about it because... I know as a geologist that something amazing happened there. I might not know what it is, but I'm sure that something did. I'm sure it was amazing and and that happens everywhere. I love that. To see a place as all
0: of the things that has been through history and prehistory, it's the kind of perspective that lets you transform a suburb to identify with a moment 66 million years ago. And yet, I also feel like I could kind of get lost in that perspective. When Ken was younger, he couldn't get himself to care about building a bridge that fell down in 2,000 years, he said. When you see the world on such a grand, huge timeline, I mean, everything we do can start to feel kind of small.
1: You know, we just occupy this tiny, tiny little sliver of time on this little dot in space. That's not a big... uh environment, either temporally or spatially. So, you know, we're not too significant when it comes to the the universe. Do you ever get almost like
0: nihilistic? Constantly being aware of how tiny you are, does it ever make you feel helpless
1: in thinking about time in this way? It could, but I think that, you know, ascribing significance to your life and to your actions is a choice, right? And I'm going to choose to live and try to enjoy this little flicker of time that I get to have because it's the only one I'm ever going to have and uh, so I'm going to choose to enjoy it even though I know it's super brief and you know humans measure their life in decades, decades or nothing. Um, so it's not much but it's what we have, right? And this is where I
0: think Ken and Michelle overlap. Though they operate on opposite ends of the timescale, they both believe that what they're doing in Mantua Township today matters. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, not wanting to just build a
1: building, and now you're building a building. <laughs> I am building a building, which will fall down essentially now. Um, but how, do you, how does that feel okay, how's that? Well. It's what I have, right? I mean, I'm, I've got decades, and maybe I get to build a building that stands for centuries. Pretty good for a, you know, a highly derived primate from Africa.
0: So there you have it, Mantua Township, a place that shows that any place you are is deeply fascinating. If you can see it at the right geologic time, or just a little more like Michelle,
2: So we're here at the Chestnut Branch Park, and when you drive in, it's such a visual, beautiful environment where these trees are blossoming. They take on all the shades of fall. They take on all shades of summer. There's green hills everywhere, beautiful tennis courts and a beautiful, clean, newly striped parking lot. The lights at night are gorgeous. They're bright just for the occasions that you're using the spaces here. Kind of has a little bit of everything.
0: Far Flung with Salim Rashamwala is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Ted. This episode was produced by, how do you say
3: your last name? Kim Naderfane Peterson.
0: Along with
3: Sabrina Farhi Huete
2: Gitana, Elise Blennerhassett, Angela Chang,
0: and
3: Michelle Quint.
0: And guidance from
1: Roxanne Highlash
0: and Colin Helms. Our fact checkers are Christian Aparta and Nicole Bodie. Ad Stories are produced by Transmitter Media. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Doug Slawin. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. Special thanks to our sponsor, Women Will a Grow with Google program. I'm Salim Rashamwala.